This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. As a leader, how do you keep a fresh perspective and ensure you're successfully representing and acting in the best interests of your organization? I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by business heavyweight Shirley Chowdhury, who shares that part of her vision and aptitude in leadership stems from her never having been part of the majority. She's been taught to look at things differently and knows the value of diverse voices. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Shirley. I know that you started your career as a lawyer at a very prestigious firm, I think what they call in the US a white shoe firm, Cleary Gottlieb. So was being a lawyer always your career dream? No, do you know, I always wanted to be a doctor. And then uh, as I, after I started university, I realised that actually that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to do work in the humanities. And so that's how I ended up with law. I had, was one of those things, I had a friend who was a lawyer and he turned around and said, oh, you know, you should think about doing that. And it spiked my interest. I think my husband says he saved me from an academic career. I would have stayed at university and studied forever if I could have. So you love the learning, but your husband saved you because, of course, you do go on to then become a lawyer at Cleary Gottlieb. (laughs) That's just his story, Kate. I did. I went on. So I met my husband when I was at university and he was living in Japan at the time. And so I couldn't apply for clerkships here. So I had to apply overseas. And I was really fortunate. Cleary was one of the firms that offered me a start. Well, you've lived in the US, you've lived in Japan, and you've lived in Australia. Um, How has living in those different jurisdictions fed into how you approach things? I think when you're, I have lived in lots of different places. I think when you live overseas, and you're not part of the majority, it teaches you a resilience and a, a strength that is really, really beneficial, and also teaches you to look at things through different eyes. So all of those experiences have been so beneficial. I started living in different countries when I was just 18 months old and so started as a child speaking a variety of different languages. And I think it's everything from being open to those sounds and those experiences and and the breadth of experience you get. That feeds into how you think about problems and how you problem solve, how you relate to other people. I've never, ever been... You know, maybe part of because of part of the way I look as well. I've never been part of the majority in any country I've lived in. And I think that just teaches you to look at things differently. And it goes to why, um, you know, we're all fighting for diversity in, you know, management pipelines and boards and organisations and the people we have sitting around the table. And it goes to that. It's so, so important to have people who have had a variety of experiences around the table. So I'm I'm making an observation on on your career, looking from the outside, and you tell me what you think. So I sort of say that your career appears to make a left turn when you come to Australia because you've been a lawyer in the US and you've been a lawyer in Japan. And then you come to Australia and you start working in community initiatives such as um, the Cerebral Palsy Alliance and the Law Society of New South Wales. And you also write a biography for a World War II prisoner of war, which I want to hear a bit more about. But but is, is that a fair assessment that your career took a kind of a left turn? And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like it just changed direction when you came to Australia. I think I think that's a generous assessment, to be honest. I think the truth is that I fell into my career. 
there've always been things that have been kind of guiding principles to me and family was always one of them. And so whereas it looks on paper like my career took a left turn, the truth was that I had a sick parent and I couldn't put into my work the time and effort you know, the hours at the desk that I'd been putting in at JP Morgan and Cleary. And so I had to do something different. I think the truth is I wasn't in a right mental state to be able to go back to work as a lawyer in finance and banking. So I had to find other things to keep me busy and occupied. And community work was something that I'd always been involved in on the side of my career. And so it appealed. And so that's how I started volunteering so much time for a number of years. And then after about 10 years of doing that, I realised that actually I was well and able to come back to a career in mainstream law again. That's right. And you come back to Westpac at that point. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the truth is that I left uni, it feels like 100 years ago, 30 years ago. And back then, there just wasn't the focus on careers that there is now. Like, you know, I um, talk to women now all the time about their next job and looking ahead 10 years and Um, working out the roles and the skills they need for where they want to be. There was nobody around me when I left Cleary or left JP Morgan who I could talk to about that. There was no, I mean, when I was at JP Morgan, it was such an amazing place to be and to work, but there was no such thing as leadership training. Nobody um, said to me, you know, you're about to be a leader, we should give you some training and let's talk about what that means. And I think the truth is I probably did a lousy job back then because it was left up to you. And I think that's a relatively new thing. So I think back then I did the best with what I could do and the opportunities in front of me. And that left turn was by necessity, not by choice. So Shirley, I'm probably of the same vintage. And that's a really interesting observation you make about leadership training and how leadership training essentially didn't exist 20 years ago. I made the observation once to a CEO I worked with in an organisation is that if if you weren't very good at your job, you got training. But if you were very good at your job, you didn't get any. Yeah, well, I was, I think I was 30 when I was co-regional counsel at JP Morgan and given a team of 10 people to work with. And, you know, I think back now with embarrassment at how I did that job, because I'm sure that I could have done it so much better. I think of those poor people who were working with me. I had no idea what I was doing. What would you have done differently? I think now, you know, the way I try and lead now, and, you know, I make 100 mistakes every day, so I don't for a minute think that I do it really well. But I think now it's about them, it's not about me. And when I was 30, I think it was about me, it wasn't about them. Um, Now I think one of the most important things I can do is help the people that I work with every day get ready for the next role and stretch and grow and develop and, you know, constantly think about what's next and what's coming up and how they can get the most out of their role. So um, so we said you went back to law for a period of time at Westpac, mm-hmm. but then you go to your current role at Go Foundation. So tell me a bit about the current role and Go Foundation. It's another one of the privileges of my life, I think. So Go was founded by Adam Goods and Michael O'Loughlin. Adam and Michael were drafted into the Sydney Swans when they were really young, 16, and they came to Sydney from Adelaide. And the Sydney community, the Indigenous community, adopted them and took them in as their own. And Adam and Michael always wanted a way to say thank you for that. 
And the role at Go is, you know, it's not my organisation. I feel really strongly that I'm a caretaker for their brand and their legacy and their story. And it's Adam and Michael's way to give back and share their success. And so what we do is we provide holistic scholarships for Indigenous students from kindergarten right through to university. And those scholarships are predominantly in public schools. And we provide three components in every scholarship. There's a a small cash component, which helps the students buy laptop, Wi-Fi, tutoring, musical instruments, school shoes, uniforms, stationery, kind of everything they need to even the playing field. And then we provide cultural and aspirational mentoring, which we do ourselves and with Indigenous organisations. And then we work with um, corporate partners and not-for-profits who help us open the door to opportunities for our students. So that's about um, asking our corporates not to do anything differently to what they already do, but just to open the door to a cohort of students who might not have um, had access to those opportunities. And what's the kind of impact do you see it having? I'm probably biased, but I think it's quite immense. Everything from we put culture, Indigenous culture, at the heart of everything we do. So I see families and students of ours being enriched by the culture they're exposed to through Go. And we do that in a number of different ways, everything from, you know, newsletters that share details about how Indigenous communities have looked at agriculture and the seasons to getting Indigenous elders in to teach Indigenous dance and language to opening doors Uh, to the kids to teach them about what raps are and what reconciliation means, getting them active in a conversation that is all about them. We see family perceptions changing. You know, if Adam Goods and Michael O'Loughlin are betting on your child, then that's a really great story. And we see pride, the parents' pride in what their kids are doing growing. We see the children's belief in themselves growing, again, because Adam and Michael and Brooke Boney and Anita Heiss and Dan Salton and these ambassadors of ours, Adam Hill, are spending time with the kids. We see them growing. And so our kids leave our mentoring days and, I, you know, I see it every time. They are a few inches taller and their chests are puffed out a little bit more. And if Adam and Michael can do it, if Brooke Boney can do it, if Anita Heiss has done it, then I can do it. And mm. a really important thing. I think the other thing we see is kind of on the more practical side, our students are going into corporate Australia and not just corporate Australia, they're going into other organisations as well, but they're getting entry into organisations that that have wraps that are looking to engage with Indigenous Australia and they're understanding that there is a whole, a whole area there that they didn't know about that they can participate in, Indigenous the Indigenous um, impact on town planning uh, through GHD, you know, the uh, how we can build in relation, in how we can build with a deep connection to country, all of these things that they didn't know about. We're expanding their horizons and their perspectives. Then on the other side, we're working with our corporate partners to work with them to make their organisations as safe and inclusive as possible because ultimately we're just not doing our job if we create this beautiful army of Indigenous kids who are looking for a place to go and to work and to take their authentic selves if we're not working with the corporates to create the environments for them to do that. I think a big part of our work is working with our partners to help them on their journey, wherever they are on that journey, to understand that, you know, engagement with Indigenous communities is not just about NAIDOC Week and Reconciliation Week. It's not just about having a wrap that you pull out of the drawer to 
twice a year. It's about creating an environment where everybody, not just Indigenous students, but everybody can take their authentic selves to work every day. And that's all that we all want. We all want to be wanted and loved and feel valuable and worthwhile in an organisation that we can take our authentic selves to work and we don't have to hide any of who we are. Let's say that Go Foundation works in the area of um, Indigenous education. Um, and to me, it sounds like a, a great program, quite bespoke, quite focused. You know, I know you're looking to scale up, but, you know, with 500 scholarships, you can really afford to um, really focus on each person individually and give them yeah. that attention. If I put that in the broad arch of Indigenous education and the outcomes that we get out of it and, you know, the overarching closing the gap policy, can you comment on how those broader initiatives work or don't work? And, you know, what else would you like to see in terms of Indigenous outcomes for education? At Go, we're very careful that um, we think it takes a village. You know, it takes a village at Go. It takes all of us collaborating and working together to get the outcomes we need. We have the oldest living culture in the world in this country. You know, Indigenous First Nations, Indigenous people in this country have looked after this land for over 60,000 years. And they've done an incredible job against everything we've thrown at them. They've done an amazing job. They've got incredible resilience and survival and beauty and knowledge. And I don't think we nurture that or teach it or learn it in any way. We don't, we don't do enough with it. We did some research in 2017. Our whole program's based on research. And the research we did with KPMG in 2017 looked at the correlation between further education after year 12 and outcomes for Indigenous communities. And what we found, I think, was really groundbreaking. It showed really clearly that if an Indigenous student finishes year 12, that's really great. That's a positive thing. But what we should be doing is encouraging them to go into further education of any kind. It could be university, it could be um, vocational courses, it could be job-ready programs, it could be on-the-job training, but a period of structured learning. If we can get them to complete a period of structured learning, all this magic happens. Their health improves, nutrition improves, child mortality goes down, suicide rates decrease, mental health improves, life expectancy increases, the chance of owning their own home increases, earnings potential increases, employment prospects improve. Everything changes. If you look at the Closing the Gap targets, clearly something is not working. We are, out of all those targets, there are only two that are on track to hit um, the target by, I think, 2035 or 2025. The other targets are way below where they should be. It seems to me that if you look at the research we did, and clearly more research needs to be done, but if you look at the research we did, education, if there is a silver bullet, and I'm not saying that there is absolutely one thing you can pour money into and get a positive answer, but if there is a silver bullet, it's education. So to me, that seems that we should be putting more effort into education. And the thing that really worries me now, especially at this period where, you know, we've, we're still battling with COVID, universities are struggling, there is a, a downward pressure on all sorts of educational funding, especially in the tertiary space. The Indigenous children who are finishing Year 12 this year and potentially next year and the year after and the year after that, may lose the economic choice 
to be able to enter further education. And that scares me because I think what that does is we're going to have a generation of Indigenous kids potentially who want to go out and get the education. They want to go out there and learn. They want to enter corporate Australia. They want to take advantage of those opportunities. But because of what COVID has done to our economy and where we're choosing to put money um, as a country in the budget and uh, in other programs, they won't have the choice to do that. And so I think what that tells me is that the importance of programs like GO and the other scholarship programs that are out there and the other bursaries and, and funding mechanisms for these children to enter further education become even more important. And we should all be supporting that because the danger, I think, in a situation like we're in is that corporates and organisations turn around and think of the programs like GO, like the Indigenous Engagement Programs, like the RAP programs as a nice to have, not as... And that's when you can lose the headway that we've gained in the last decade. Coming back to your career, and I see a movement between law, uh, a more corporate career, if you like, and more socially orientated roles, like the role you're in now. Do those two sides of your career inform each other? And if so, how? I am a big believer that lawyers have a huge amount of value to add in the third sector. And I think headhunters and recruiters don't always see that. My argument when I was looking for for this role was that I had a set of skills. You know, lawyers are strong communicators. They write well. They can distill large volumes of information uh, very quickly. They can explain ideas succinctly. We can negotiate. We can write contracts. We can. There's a breadth of things that lawyers can do really well. They are usually really commercial because they've been involved in commercial negotiations on transactions. And I think all of those skills have come into play in my role as a CEO. I think the last four years, we have moved from kind of a startup organization to perhaps a more mature startup. But I have used every one of those skills. I have negotiated agreements with governments and corporates. I've written agreements late at night when the lawyers were trapped for time and couldn't get it to me straight away. It's the way we communicate. Okay, it's transactional lawyers to project manage and that project management tool has come in, um, skill set has come in really handy. Let me ask you about yourself as a leader now. You know, we talked earlier and you said, you look, oh, I, wasn't, I wasn't a very good leader. I didn't have any leadership training, you know, when I was at JP Morgan. Fast forward to now, how would you describe yourself as a leader now? Learning. I think that's, you know, that probably sums it up. Look, I try. I don't and I don't get it right all the time. You know, one day when I'm not here anymore and people talk about what kind of leader I was, I'd like the word empathy to be used. I'd like fair to be used. Principles are really, really important to me, values. So I'd like someone to say I was values led. Other than that, Kate, I think I'm still working it out. Every day I get off a phone call sometimes and think, oh, I could have done that a lot better or, you know, have those difficult conversations and think I could have done those. I think a good leader is one that understands that they're always learning and always growing and always making mistakes. And that's how you get better. I'm just fortunate that I work with really understanding people who give me the benefit of the doubt 10 times a day. Our careers in some ways have been similar. So I started and I worked in a vaguely corporate-ish, you know, sort of listed listed entity type of organisation. And then I moved a few years ago and I work at a not-for-profit now. And I always think back on it and I think in that listed entity, it was a more, it was more, it was a more male environment, you know, I had a male CEO and had a male senior executive team, etc. And then when you move to the not-for-profit world, it's very much more a female world. The one thing about it that I always think about is that it seems vaguely gendered, you know, the idea that women gravitate towards more caring and social professions and men gravitate towards more corporate Careers. What's your view on that? I agree with that to a point, but the question I would ask is why is it that women gravitate to the not for profit sector? 
And what is it about the um, commercial sector that doesn't work for women? And is it that, I mean, I've had female bosses in the commercial world and in the not-for-profit world, and I've had female bosses who, um, you know, there's that saying by Madeleine Albright, there's a place in hell for women who don't support women. I've worked for those women. And I've worked for incredibly supportive, nurturing women like I do now. You know, I've had the benefit of having Sam Mostyn as my chair and Sonia Stewart and amazing women on my board. And I think there is a reason why women leave the commercial sector. I left that space because whilst I loved the people I was working with, it wasn't feeding my soul. And I think there are more people, men and women, looking for that in their careers. Purpose has become, so we see it in our kids that go. I think also women just get fed up with that bullshit you get in commercial in commercial space, you know, where you're playing politics all the time. And that's not to say that, that all not-for-profits don't have that, that political game playing, but I just think it's more prevalent in, definitely prevalent in banking and finance. The not-for-profit sector has learned to be flexible and create workplaces that work for men and women that want to look after their children and job share and, you know, have work-life balance and connect, be connected to purpose. And so I think it's more about going to the root cause and saying, what is it about the commercial world that's driving women away? I wanted to come back to talking a little bit about, like I said, the current environment effectively, the health crisis that we currently live in and how that impacts on things. First of all, in terms of how it impacts um, perhaps on the young people that you sponsor, that you give scholarships to, has the current crisis changed the type of conversations that you're having with them and the conversations they're having uh, among themselves? You know, our students and our families that we work with at Go in many ways have been at the coalface of the worst parts of the crisis that we've gone through and are going through. You know, they lost their jobs. They, you know, had to apply for JobKeeper. Some weren't eligible to get JobKeeper. They, despite the fact that the government said nobody will be evicted, we had students and families who faced eviction. So the worst parts of who we are, you know, got offloaded on our kids and families. I think the conversations we're having are different in terms of what they're going to do when they finish school. And it gets back to that discussion we had earlier about not having the economic choice anymore to perhaps pursue the education goals that they had wanted to pursue, making sure that they know about all the opportunities they have. You know, I would hate for any of our students not to go into further education because money was an issue. I think money is one of those awful things that you think your opportunities are so limited if you don't have it, but it's actually the probably one of the easiest things that we can address. I'm seeing young people say that yeah, they care deeply about the environment and about the world we're giving them. They have less equity in their future now. And so they care. They want to be connected to purpose. They want to be making a difference. There's a little bit of hopelessness, I think. And I think we need to be making sure that the young, that young people leaving school and university today don't feel like they have no hope. On a personal level for you, how has the health crisis impacted you and, and potentially the way you think about the future? Has it changed anything for you? You know, at Go, we had to think really quickly. We've built a really strong balance sheet at Go. So from a financial perspective, we were, we were fine and we could keep giving scholarships and, and did. But I think we had to pivot really quickly to think about how we could deliver what we did um, when we weren't face-to-face with students. And I think that challenge was one that my team um, and the board and everybody at Go rose, rose to the challenge. And I think we've done a really good job. But you know, I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about, we talk about wicked problems. And 
COVID or the threat of, you know, a pandemic or something that would shut down the world was always a wicked problem that nobody ever thought we'd have to face. And we've all had to face it this year. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of food for thought there. You know, how, what sort of future do we want? What sort of society do we want? This is an opportunity for us to reset and course correct on environment, on disadvantage, on equity, on Indigenous engagement and reconciliation. And I worry that we will miss the opportunity and we will, as a society and as a government and as a country, as a world, want to go back to where we were. And I think we can be so much better than that. It is It is a real time of opportunity whilst being a time of crisis. Just finally, I was thinking when I was looking at your CV that you work with some really well-known Indigenous leaders. I mean, a really high calibre, you know, Linda Burney, Adam Goods, Michael Lachlan, as you mentioned, Sonia Stewart, which who I'm interviewing as part of this series as well. What do you see in terms of leadership in the Indigenous community that the wider community could learn from? I think when I started this role, I think that there was probably... I'd always, I'd always worked in the um, corporate space. And even though I had a lot of not-for-profit experience, I kept drawing back to my corporate experience. And Adam and Michael, I've probably learned the biggest lessons from those two because they are the most humble and generous leaders I've ever worked with. They taught me that inadvertently, I don't think they ever set out to do this, but they taught me that leadership comes in so many different guises. And I think we have so much to learn from Indigenous leadership. You know, the way Adam and Michael and Sonia and the other leaders we work with think about inclusivity and collaboration and working together to get the end result. I think it's so easy to think that we understand that perspective. And I think we all have so much learning to do in that area. If we worked together with Indigenous Australia to create our future, we would be so much better off because doing it together, we are, we would be formidable. You know, as a country, we would be so much stronger. It's the way they bring in family and community and it's not just about self, it's about everybody together. I think there are some really important lessons there and I always jump to snap. You know, somebody will ask me a question, I'll be happy to give an answer straight away. To watch Adam and Michael take time to think about an answer and be considered and really think deeply about something has you know, I'm a work in progress, so I'm not sure I'd ever, I'll ever get to to do it in the um, in the way they do it. But it's really enlightening, and it's informing, and it teaches you about diversity and what diver- the strength of diversity of thinking and leveraging all of our skills. Like, you know, you get ten people around the room, you get ten different skill sets, and how can you leverage all of those to the best advantage? Thanks for joining me to hear from Shirley. This episode was produced by our ever-amazing producer, Lisa Gebelagen. I want to say thank you all for listening because that is it for season one. Make sure you subscribe to us on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss us when we come back for season two. Or you can keep an eye out at womensagenda.com.au. Bye for now. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.